heads in prayer. <clears throat> oh, Father, you are glorious in majesty. And for that alone, we worship you. For that alone, we sing adoration to your name. Father, you're God. You're our Father. And even if you had not sent Jesus, your Son, our Savior, we would still bow to worship you this day, for you are God. You're our King. But you did send him. And we praise you and worship you. You did send him to bear your wrath in our place. You did send him to hang on the cruel cross and to suffer for me, for me. We praise you, God. We praise you for your church. Your son was sent to die for your church. And we pray your blessings on your church. We pray your blessings on the ministries of your church, on the the missionaries who serve your church. We pray today for Amanda Bonds, who's doing mission work in Beaufort, South Carolina. Lord, we just we, we pray that you would bless her work and her service. And there's so many others around the world in particularly dangerous places. Those that are in crisis areas, Lord, who are serving you faithful even this day. We pray your power, your spirit, your blessings in their lives. Put, put your protection around them and over them. Guard them, Father, as they serve you in the name of Jesus. We pray for this church today. Grace on the Ashley. You know our needs and you're faithfully meeting our needs. And we praise you for that. You know those in our fellowship, Father, are sick and suffering. Those who are homebound. And those who need you particularly close today, we pray that you administer to them. Use us as a church body to minister to them and to serve them. And we gather today to thank you and praise you for your word. We get to pray your word. We get to sing your word. We get to proclaim your word. As our pastor proclaims it now. Speak your word through him straight to our hearts. Change us, God. Change us for your glory and your honor and for all your purposes. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. This morning we will give attention to John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12 to verse 30, I'll read and... Uh, You follow along or listen along. John writes, Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. But Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know, neither my, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. For where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You're not of this world. Excuse me, you are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The word of the Lord. We uh, find ourselves trekking through a a section of John's gospel uh, where we're seeing some themes that are rather repetitive. I was telling Pastor Frank this morning um, as we were talking in the office that... um, uh, I'm finding this, these, uh, this, this section a bit challenging because Jesus is continuing to preach the same message over and over, just using a different illustration each time. And uh, so uh, I was telling Pastor Frank, it's a little challenging because, you know, you kind of feel like you're preaching the same sermon you preached a couple of weeks ago. And um, folks are going to think you're, you know, just, you know, replaying a couple of weeks ago. But, um, oh, he says you've already forgotten that one, so it's no big deal. Um, hmm. I have much more faith in you than that. I'm telling you. Um, however, uh, I suppose since Jesus repeats the message, it's worth repeating, right? So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll trek along as he teaches it, and we'll try and point out the differences. But you understand what's going on here. John's, John's whole goal and his whole thrust, his whole purpose in writing this gospel has been rather singular. Just one thing. is to declare Jesus Christ... As God in flesh, that he is not just a man, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a great teacher, he's not just a miracle worker, he is none other than, nothing less than, God in flesh. He is God come to earth. To see him is to see the Father, to hear him speak is to hear the words of the Father. To watch him behave and to watch him act is to see the Father in action. And so John is is repeatedly, time and time again, trying to press this point home and he's using the works of jesus his actions and he's using the words of jesus the things that he said to continuously bolster that one main point and the goal is that you might hear it time and time again that you might see it time and time again and that the result in your life might be the result that was in the lives of those recorded in verse 30 of this text as he was saying these things many believed in him that's the point john is after That people may hear it over and over and see it over and over. And that the net result of hearing it and seeing it would be that they would what? That they would believe it. That they would believe it. Sometimes we need to hear things more than once to believe it. Sometimes we need to see it more than once to believe it. And that is what John is after here. And so uh, we have in the context here the same thing that we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, We have Jesus teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles. We have Jesus making astounding statements. And then we have the enemies of Christ responding to his statements. And, And so John is giving us both views. He's giving us the words of Jesus and he's giving us the response of his enemies. And then occasionally, like we get in verse 30, he gives us the response of others around Jesus. In this case, the many who believed in him. 
And the message is the same. Jesus is declaring himself uh, the Messiah who's come to redeem all who would believe on him. That is his message. And he's, it's really the, an encapsul, uh, encapsulated form of the gospel, isn't it? Uh, and he says it in very succinct ways and he uses different illustrations. Do you remember the last time we talked about uh, Jesus in the temple? Uh, it was a little earlier in chapter 7. Do you remember what was going on there? See, I have more faith in you than Pastor Frank. I do believe you remember. Jesus was in the temple, the Feast of Tabernacles. There's this big water ceremony going on where the priest is marching out and he's getting this water from the pool of Siloam and he's pouring it out on the altar. And in the midst of that, Jesus stands up and he says something astounding. Do you remember what he said? If, if anyone is thirsty, you're close. If anyone is thirsty, let him what? Come to me and drink. And out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. That was a message of the gospel. I am the the ultimate quenching of your soul's thirst. Come to me and drink. Well, in the same sort of a context, Jesus speaks again to a crowd in the same general location. And this time, instead of using water as an illustration, he uses light as an illustration. Instead of saying, I'm the water for your thirsty soul, this time he changes it up and he says, I'm the light that's going to shine in your darkness. And this illustration of light and darkness is a theme that runs off from the Old Testament right on through to the New, time and time again. Just a few examples from the Old Testament. Psalm 27.1, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? In Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. Uh, you give them uh, to drink uh, the river of your delights. Psalm 44, 3. For by their own sword did they possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But by your right hand and your arm, and what? The light of your presence you favored them. The light of your presence. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you're very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with what? With light as a cloak. It's an incredible picture of, of the Lord, right? Clo- clothing himself like a cloak with, with what? With light. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19 and 20. Uh, the psalm, I mean, the, uh, the, the prophet writes, No longer will you have the, the sun for the light by day. This is the prophecy of a day to come when all things are made right. He says, When that day comes, no longer will you have the sun for the light of day, nor, the brightness, um, uh, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for what? For an everlasting light. And your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord. And He will be for you an everlasting light. The Lord, an everlasting light. In Ezekiel chapter 1, you remember, if you're familiar with Ezekiel, Ezekiel got a glimpse of, of, of heaven. And he got a glimpse of the Lord. And in that description, we get this little nugget in Ezekiel 1, 27 and 28. I know, then I noticed from the appearance of his loins, this, this figure that he saw, the Lord, and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from his appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was radiance around him. And the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I and mean, it's a picture that's just brimming with the radiance of of, of glorious light and all throughout the old testament we see descriptions of the lord and and oftentimes it's described with this imagery of light and brightness that represents the glory of god and jesus knows the 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 hebrew the 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 jewish background of this illustration so he understands his crowd jewish people and so he knows that they understand these these pictures these allusions in the old testament this illustration and so he uses it in this particular case now john has also already addressed this theme hasn't he in our study of john john chapter one it's one of the first things we saw do you remember so i have great faith in you that remember all the way back to chapter one verse one and five in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was the life, or was life, and the life was the what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
He begins picturing for us Jesus, the Messiah who's come, the Word of God as light that shines in the darkness. Where did he get that illustration? Where did he get it? We got it from Jesus here in the the Feast of Tabernacles. We're seeing where John heard that illustration. Here Jesus used it of himself. And so John captures that and he starts off his gospel with that illustration that Jesus used. And so this theme of light and darkness tracks from the Old Testament right through to the New. And so it would have been a very familiar theme uh, to the Jews that would have heard Jesus originally speak these things. And so it's a very familiar illustration to describe who he is. And that's what we'll see in this text. John begins um, uh, uh, this text, verse 12, uh, by, depending on your translation, the first word you see is either then or again. Um, one or the other, depending on how you're, you're, uh, which one you have. ESV says again, some others say then. It can be translated either way. But regardless of how it's translated, it means the same thing. That word is connecting this, this next story or this next narrative to something that's happened before. Now, it's not connecting it to the immediate context before, uh, chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. Why, is it, why do we know it's not connecting to that? Were you here last week? If you were here last week, you know the answer to that question. If you weren't, you're exempt from the question, okay? Um, because last week we determined, we figured out that that, is, that that text immediately preceding this is a later edition. It's not found in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. And we believe that that is not a text that belongs in the, the text. So this story of this adulterous woman caught in adultery doesn't belong. So uh, what we get here in chapter 8, verse 12, that again or that then is connecting it, I believe, to what's right before that. Uh, which is the story of Jesus speaking in the temple with the the water ceremony and all of those things going on. Um, So so that would be verse 52 of chapter 7. So that story ends, Jesus and the the water sort of issue going on. And then we pick up in verse 12. And again, or then Jesus spoke to them saying these things. So it's within the same context is all I'm trying to say. That was a really long way of trying to say something short, wasn't it? But you've got time, right? Okay. Not really. Okay. So we're in the same setting is what I'm trying to tell you. And, and in verse 20 is where John gives us our, our most important context statement. Verse 20. It says at the very beginning, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Now you might normally glance over that, but it's an important little nugget of information for us to understand what Jesus is talking about and why it is he uses this illustration of light. Um, because we're still dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember what the feast was celebrating or commemorating? It was commemorating and, and celebrating God's leading of the Israelites out of Egypt towards where? The Promised Land. That's exactly right. And so the whole Feast of Tabernacles was celebrating the, the miraculous things God did along the way there. Okay? And so that's all, and, and all of the. All of the ceremony and all of the ritual attached with this has some connection to that season in the history of Israel. So you remember, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Okay, once they were led out of Egypt, how did they know where to go? Okay, so you guys have some answers, and you're right. I heard them all throughout there. Exodus chapter 13, 21 and 22 tells us how they knew where to go. They knew where to go because the Bible tells us the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them what? Light. That they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So do you remember that? This pillar of cloud during the day, and it also had a radiance that shone from it, and the voice of the Lord actually spoke from the cloud. And then at nighttime when it was dark, you know, you think in terms of a, of a culture where there is no electricity, where there are no flashlights, where there are no, you know, all the things that you have to be able to see at night if you want to today, when none of that is there, it's pitch black at night. At night, it wasn't pitch black for them because... The Lord illuminated everything by this pillar of fire so that even at night they knew where to go and they could see their way. And so at, at each, each night during the Feast of Tabernacles, they did something by way of ritual that, that commemorated God's provision of light for them uh, during that time. And, and it was in the court of women uh, of the temple. So if you remember the, the temple, how that's set up, the outer court is the court of Gentiles. Okay, anybody can go in there, even Gentiles. 
There was a doorway from there to an inner court, which is called the court of women. Gentiles were not allowed in there. They had to stay out of the court of Gentiles. Jews could proceed forward. Okay, this is called the court of women. Why do you think? Well, that was as far as the ladies could go. Um, that was as far as the ladies could go. There was another inner court beyond that where Jewish men could proceed, where the sacrifices and all those things were taking place. But the court of women was one of the busiest places in the temple. And it was in the court of women where the treasury was found. Okay, that's why John tells us here that Jesus says these things in the treasury. You can imagine the treasury not as like a, um, like a vault where there's money, but the treasury was a part of the court of women. And it was the part where, um, where, where people gave their offerings. It was where people dropped off their offerings. There were 13 um, kind of horn, golden horn-shaped receptacles that were all around the court of women in the treasury section. And each one was labeled for, for a, a different purpose, you know. Just call that designated offerings, you know. They were all labeled for what they were. And when people came to worship, they would drop their offerings in these receptacles and, and the money would go to the various purposes. It was, it was called the treasury for that purpose. So this was a busy, busy part of the temple, a treasury inside the court of women. And inside this part of the court were these four massive, and I mean massive, candelabra-looking things that were huge lamps. And every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, um, as, as darkness would begin to descend on uh, the people, they would, the, the priests would come and they would, they would light up these huge lamps, these huge candelabras. And they would, they would literally illuminate the entire temple area and shine. Uh, you could see it from a, a massive distance away. And they would light everything up and there would be great celebration well into the night uh, at the light of these huge lamps. Uh, Don Carson quotes from the, the, the Jewish Mishnah, and he d- d- describes what was going on. And the Mishnah says this, Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. And the, the Levitical orchestras cut loose. And some sources attest that, um, that this went on every night of the Feast of Tab- Tabernacles with the light from the temple area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. So that context matters, right? So you've got this, this celebratory thing going on with these massive lights illuminating all of Jerusalem and people celebrating with torches and light everywhere. And it's into the mix of that context that Jesus speaks. Once again, doing something similar to what he did with the water ceremony, right? The water ceremony that's going on, he captures that, that, that ritual and he redefines it as defining himself and what he came to do. Once again, Jesus does the same thing. There's this ritual going on with light and celebration and illumination everywhere. And it's as though Jesus says, all of this light, in the midst of all of this light that you're celebrating, there was something that took place in the past, he stands up in the midst of that and he says something absolutely stunning. Really, stunning. What does he say? He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I mean, that's an amazing thing to say in such a context. Now, we can't be 100% sure that he was saying it as that was going on. In my mind's eye, I tend to think that's the way it played out. Um, but we know at least he was there in that location, and people would certainly have that, that picture in their minds as Jesus makes this stunning announcement. I am the light of the world. You're celebrating all this light that, that God provided for you in the past. The, the greatest light of all lights is right in front of you right now, and it's me. It's me. This is the first of seven I am statements that John's going to give us, Jesus saying in this, in, this, um, in this narrative. It's the second, I'm sorry, it's the second. He's already said, I'm the bread of life, the manna from heaven, right? Um, now he's saying, I'm the light of the world. And he's going to say, I am uh, five more times as we track through John's gospel. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. In the midst of this statement, Jesus identifies humanity's worst problem. Did you catch it? He identifies here what humanity's worst problem is. The the, the worst problem that humanity faces in Jesus' day, in our day, is not lack of education. The worst problem humanity faced in His day and in our day is not poverty. It's not terrorism. It's not evil dictators. The worst problem that humanity has ever faced 
then or now is something that he identifies as darkness. Spiritual darkness. A darkness not of the atmosphere, but a darkness of the heart. A darkness that blinds us, a darkness that confuses us, a darkness that that frustrates us, a darkness that conceals our path in life so that we don't know where to go, a a darkness that, that conceals danger in our path so that we can't see it and we're easily tripped up by things. Have you ever been somewhere where it was really dark and tried to move around when you didn't have any light? Have you ever done that? Did it turn out good or turn out well for you? I can remember, you know, very vividly a day um, before we merged the congregations, we were at the old facility. And I remember going into the sanctuary late at night on a really dark night. And I had walked in from the front up near the, the platform area and I needed to get to the back. And I, you know, I'd been there 15 years. I knew the place, you know, pretty well. And uh, I thought, you know, I don't need to turn the lights on. I know what I'm going for back there. I just walk back there and get it. I know where the aisle is. And so... I mean, really stupidly, um, I, I charted that course in the dark. And, and I remember very vividly turning a corner towards the back. And little did I know, there was one of those old rickety metal chairs, folding chairs, right in the middle of the path. And, um, you know, I hit that sucker going full speed. And, and I, you know, you ever have that, that occasion in your life when you hit something and you lose your balance and you're kind of tangled up, and the more you try and catch your balance, the more you actually lose it? And it's like this awkward and weird dance going on until ultimately you just give up and you hit the deck, you know. Um, so that's what was going on, me in this chair and the dance. It was just all legs and chair, you know, all tangled up until finally we both ended up on the ground. And I was bruised and banged up on my legs. And I remember thinking, laying on the ground with a chair on top of me, you idiot, why didn't you turn on the light? Why did you not just turn on the light? You just had to flip the switch. But I paid for not doing that. I paid for walking around in the darkness. And just as foolish as it is to walk around in the darkness and just as dangerous as it is to walk around in physical darkness, Jesus is saying humanity has a problem of the heart, a darkness of the heart that is just as dangerous, that is, that is, that is worse by far than any sort of a physical darkness because it conceals all sorts of things that can destroy us. It has the same effect on us spiritually that darkness has on us physically. It blinds us to the truth. It conceals the pathways of righteousness. It disorients us so spiritually we don't know which way to go. It frustrates us and it discourages us because we can't see a way out of our situation because all is dark. And the Bible goes on to describe this spiritual darkness that Jesus uses here as an illustration of the worst problem that we have is being caused by something called sin. Rebellion against God. That is the source of the darkness in the human heart. And it is the worst problem that humanity has ever faced. It's sin that darkens the spiritual eyes. It's sin that that darkens the spiritual perception. It is sin that blinds us and causes us to walk in darkness. And we see this all throughout the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 13, it describes a sinner as one who, quote, walks in the ways of, guess what? Darkness. What is a sinner? It's a person who walks in darkness. Like I walk through a dark sanctuary. This, a sinner is someone who walks through life in a spiritual stupor, a spiritual darkness. He can't see where he's going. He can't discern the truth. He can't understand right from wrong. So he consistently chooses wrong. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Darkness, a description of a sinner. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, sinners are described this way as, quote, those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Again, the same illustration. In Romans chapter 1, Paul captures the same picture. In verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And what happened? Their foolish hearts were darkened 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 by their sin and it's not just that the hearts of uh, uh, are darkened by sin but the behaviors then become the result of that darkness and so ephesians chapter 5 we have paul describing all sorts of evil actions by people and he literally calls them the unfruitful works of darkness so that's what people with dark hearts do they live out unfruitful works of darkness And so when we get to Acts and we hear Paul preaching 
I mean, excuse me, here Jesus speaking to Paul, who was then Saul. And he describes people who are Christians as those who have turned from darkness to the what? To the light and from the power of Satan to God. You see, that's the problem humanity has always had. We come into this world as sinful people in rebellion against our Creator, and the result of our sin is a darkened spiritual heart, a dark heart that leads to a dark outlook, that leads to dark behaviors. And apart from some light shining into our darkness, we will live in the darkness forever, and we will do the unfruitful deeds of darkness forever. And unless we turn from the darkness toward the light... We will always be under the power of Satan. And we will die apart from Christ. That's the problem of all humanity. And, and, and here's, the, here's the worst part of the problem. We have no capability within us to do anything about it. Our only hope for escaping the dark is for some source of outside illumination to invade our darkness and show us a way out. It's for some sort of an external source to, to rescue us and to help us and to lead us out of the darkness. It's our only hope outside illumination. December 5th, 1986 may not be a day that stands out in your memory particularly, but it is a day that stands out in the memory of a man by the name of Walter Wyatt Jr. He's a pilot for United Airlines uh, for a career. Uh, but he also was a, a private pilot who flew private planes. He had his own plane as well. And he normally flew from Nassau in the Bahamas to Miami and the United States in about 65 minutes. But that was not the case on December 5th, 1986. You see, when he got to his, his, um, his aircraft in Nassau uh, on that date, he found that some thieves had, had broken into his aircraft and had stolen much of his equipment and broken other things, uh, particularly the navigational equipment in his Beechcraft aircraft. But he had uh, a handheld radio and a compass, and he was an experienced pilot. So he decided to make the, the flight back to Miami uh, on his own. Uh, the weather was, was uh, predicted to be clear that day, so he thought, you know, with his radio, with his compass, an experienced pilot, he could fly low, he could, he could make it back to Miami. Unfortunately for him... Several things went wrong along the way. Number one, the forecast was wrong. It was not a bright, sunny day. It was a dark, stormy night. And not only was it dark and stormy, but as he began to, to make the trek, charting by way of his compass, he realized somewhere along the way that in, when the thieves had broken into his aircraft and stolen his navigational equipment, they'd apparently damaged his compass, and so it was not properly reading the right direction. So he was following an errant compass, and he realized pretty quickly that he was completely lost over the ocean. He did have his handheld radio, and so he was able to, to issue a mayday call, which brought a Coast Guard Falcon uh, search plane out to, to meet him. There was an emergency landing strip only about six miles away, and the Coast Guard uh, uh, pilot was, was leading him in the direction. Unfortunately, along the path, before he could get to the landing strip, he ran out of gas, ran out of fuel. And the only thing he could do was guide his aircraft down into the, the rough and choppy, stormy waters, about 8 p.m. It's exactly what he did. He was wearing only his shorts, a T-shirt, and tennis shoes. Um, he quickly was able to grab some flares and a, and a life vest and... Uh, Upon impact into the water, he hit his head and his leg uh, on the dash, and so he was cut and bleeding, but he survived the crash and was okay. He had his faculties about him. He was able to get out onto the wing of the aircraft and to jump in the water. He said within 20 seconds the plane was completely gone under the water. And he found himself at 8 p.m. bobbing in pitch black, stormy waters in the ocean. The Coast Guard aircraft in that environment could no longer see him, and the plane had disappeared. So spotting one guy bobbing around, um, Jason, what do you think? Not very, Jason's a pilot, I'm, that's why I'm asking. Not, not, not good chances, not good chances at all. Walter Wyatt knew that he didn't have good chances at all. To make matters worse, uh, when he got into the, into the water and was bobbing around, he quickly realized that his life vest was leaky and not holding air very well. 
And if that wasn't enough trouble, uh, he said that before very long, he found a hard bump against his body in the water. Can you imagine what that was? It was a shark that had found him. For the next eight hours, Walter Wyatt, in the water, fighting for his life to stay afloat, kicking sharks as they came by. He later said in an interview that if it had been a clear day and the weather had been good, he would have been a goner. It was only because of the choppy water that the sharks were a little disoriented in what he was. And so he would sit and he would see that he could see in some sense their dorsal fins as they would get close and he would just rear back his leg and kick them. For eight hours bobbing in the water, that's what he did, fighting off sharks. He said, quote, the first time a shark hit me, I jumped. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. He had been holding his fingers in the holes of the life vest to try and keep air in it. My fingers came out of the holes and the jacket filled with water. He said, I prayed to God to kill me many times. I didn't think I'd make it until midnight. I spent all my time filling my life jacket up and kicking the sharks and talking to God. I remember I told you he had flares when he jumped out. The flares did not function. They failed. He fights through the night, and in the morning, he said, he, he, you know, I, he, said in the, he made it. He said, I didn't think I'd make it through the nighttime, but he did. He made it through the nighttime, and as the dawn began to break, he began looking for aircraft, thinking that the Coast Guard would come back. Uh, and eventually, eventually, just when he was about to just give up, he did hear the sound of an aircraft, and so he began to wave his orange life vest, and a pilot happened to see him in the water. The pilot radioed the Cape York, which was a... a, a uh, a vessel that was not too far away, about 12 minutes away. And here was what the, the Coast Guard, I mean the pilot radioed. Get moving, Cutter. There's a shark targeting this guy. The Coast Guard later said, the Coast Guard guy who radioed that later said, I read an interview. He said later that it, he saw the biggest shark he had ever seen. And wherever Walter Wyatt moved, that shark was just moving in the same direction. The, the, the Cape York pulls up alongside Wyatt, and he, said, and he said in his interview that when they pulled up, everybody was standing up on the deck with M16s. Not for him, but for the sharks around him. The, the Jacob's Ladder came over the side, and he was able to climb up onto the ship, fell down on his knees, and kissed the deck. He'd been saved. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? It's a remarkable story of survival. It's a remarkable story of of absolute divine providence. In an interview later on, um, talking about the sharks, that intrigued me, so I wanted to read some more about this. Get terrified of sharks. Um, one of the interviewers said, you had sharks all with you all night long. He said, more or less, the worst thing about it was most of the time I couldn't see them. Visibility was less than three feet and the sky was overcast. The sharks would come up on my blood trail and bump me as I was swimming. He said, when there was still daylight, I could watch them come down the wave behind me, and I'd wait till they were really close, rear back my leg, and kick them. He said, I could really boot them good. He said, I saw all all kinds of sharks. The worst was a mako, which is about the baddest and most aggressive shark you can have. He came up behind me, and he lifted his head up out of the water to look at me, just like a person would, about 10 feet away. He said, weren't you scared? He said, there was no reason. Being scared would have done no good. If they eat you, they eat you. I had accepted the fact that I was going to die. All I was asking was that God would make it quick. I really didn't want to be eaten. That's an incredibly challenging predicament, right? I mean, apart from outside help, this man is a dead man. Anybody in their rational mind knows it. And he, above all people, knew that unless somebody from the outside divinely came across his path and rescued him, he was done. He was absolutely, absolutely done. And Jesus is painting that exact same picture as a predicament of every human being who ever walks the planet. That as desperate as Walter Wyatt's situation was bobbing up and down in the ocean... As, as, as much of a dead man as he was, as hopeless as he was, as powerless to do anything about his own situation as he was, that is the condition of every human being because our hearts are darkened by sin and apart from some outside help illuminating our darkness and doing something to rescue us, we will go down and die in our sin. 
And Jesus knows this. He knows that that is the predicament of every heart walking back and forth celebrating in that temple on that night. And that's why he stands up to them in the midst of the darkness, looking at all these darkened, sin-blinded hearts running around celebrating. And he says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever will follow me will no longer walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light who has come to shine in your darkness. You are desperate and you don't know it. You are desperately blind and roaming around in the darkness. And I am here. I can help you. I can rescue you. In fact, I have come for that very purpose. To shine light into your darkness and to show you a way out. It's a remarkable thing to say. An incredibly remarkable thing for him to say to that crowd on that particular day. The light of the world. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm not one of many lights. I'm what? I'm delight. There's me or there's darkness. That's your choice. There's not a bunch of lights out there that you can choose among which I'm one. You can pick me or you can pick the other religion or you can pick the next guy. It's not many, many paths up the same mountain that all lead to the top. Jesus says, I exclusively am the way. I am the light. I can lead you out. But I'm the only way out. You'll either follow me or you'll remain in your darkness. That's the choice that he gives. He says, I'm the light of the world. I'm not just the light of one nation or one tribe. I'm not just the light for smart people or educated people or uneducated people. I'm not just a light for wealthy people. Uh, I, I, I am a light for the world. I'm a light for anyone in the world who will turn from darkness towards the light. I will show them the way out. I will rescue them. I will lift them out of the stormy waters away from the sharks. I'll redeem them. I'll save them. It's an incredible thing to say in that kind of a context. Isn't that the light of the world? Follow me. Get out of the dark. There's more to what he's trying to say than just this light and darkness. If you remember the Feast of Tabernacles and that whole celebration of the, the pillar and the cloud and the Old Testament, Jesus is linking onto that thing. He's making a greater point about himself. He's saying, you remember that, that pillar and that cloud that the Lord spoke out of that you're celebrating? He says, I am the pillar in the cloud. He's identifying himself with God personally. I am the one who speaks from the, from the cloud. I am none other than the God of the cloud and the pillar come to see you face to face. It was a claim to deity. Just as following that cloud and that pillar were your only hope in the desert, I am your only hope out of the darkened condition of your heart. You know how Jesus describes hell? He describes it lots of ways, but one of the ways that he described hell was this outer darkness. Do you know what hell is? Hell is a place where there is a complete and utter absence of any illumination of Christ. It's utter darkness where there is not one shred of the light of Christ. A place that is completely void of Him forever. Jesus said, that's who I am. I'm the light who's come to shine in the darkness. Follow me. If you follow me, you won't walk in the darkness, but you'll have the light of life. What does he mean by follow me? Well, he means the same thing he meant when he told him earlier, come to me and drink of the water. He simply means abandoning all self-effort, abandoning all other pursuits to try and rescue yourself and to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your selfish ways and to turn towards me and with reckless abandon, latch on to me with your entire life and throw the full weight of your trust and faith on me and, and trust me to save you. That's what he means. Follow me. Let your whole life onto me. And if you do that, he says, you trust fully in me to save you? He said, then you will have the light of life. You'll have it. It's not just that you'll experience from time to time. You'll, you'll have it. The light of life. The, I am the light that will now illuminate your life. And wherever you go, you don't walk in the darkness anymore because everywhere you go, you have the light. And it helps you to see. You can understand truth from error. You can see danger when it's coming. You can identify sin. You can figure out my will for your life. You can understand right from wrong. You can open up the Word of God and you can make sense of it because you have the light. It shines everywhere you go. It becomes yours. Your life will never be the same. That's what he's saying. Your life will never be the same. 
John Piper captures this. He says, nothing will be the same again when you have him as your light. Everything looks different in the light of Christ. Even now, this light will help you bear the sorrows of darkness. It'll be a soft glow to comfort you in your lonely room after devastating loss. It'll be a lamp in your troubled path. It'll reveal the wise and loving face of God behind every frowning providence. That's what the light does when you have it. It exposes your sin. It illuminates the path of joy and the path of righteousness. You know, in chapter 9 of this gospel, you know what's going to happen? Jesus is going to illustrate this same point in a very vivid way. You know how he's going to do it? He's going to walk up to a man who has been born blind. He's been blind his entire life. He has never seen anything except what? Complete and utter darkness. And he's going to open his eyes. And that man is going to go from very real sense, physically seeing nothing but darkness, to now having his whole world illuminated by light. Can you imagine this stark contrast? And Jesus is saying, that's what happens when you follow me. It's like you've been a blind person your whole life. And all of a sudden, I light everything up so you can see it as it is. You've lived believing the world was one way. And you've been living in a fog of ignorance. And I will light it up so that you can see it just as I created it. And you'll understand your place in it and what to do. Well, in the face of such a stunning statement... (laughs) It's no surprise to us that Jesus' enemies are going to have a response. The response should have been instantly what? To fall on their faces before the the Son of God. And to say, we will follow you, light our lives up. It's never how they respond. Because we've seen this time and time again. They are entrenched in their intentional, fully willing unbelief. So instead of, instead of responding to the content of what Jesus said, instead of responding to the offer of eternal light that He offers, you know what they do? They do what ignorant, willing, unbelief always does. It ignores the content and attacks the messenger. That's what it does. And that's what they do to Jesus. Instead of dealing with the content of what he says, you know what they start to do? They start an argument, essentially, with him. A legal argument saying, oh, no, no, you don't have the authority to say that. Isn't that brilliant? We can just sidestep this whole issue. We don't have to deal with the content of what you said as long as we can try and find a technicality. And their technicality is, in the law courts, you can't uh, claim something to be true without the witness of a couple people, at least two. And so they say to Jesus, Jesus, you can't go around saying stuff like that. You're the light of the world. You're just testifying about yourself. You don't have anybody else to witness that being the truth. We don't believe you. You're a liar. That's what they're saying. You're a liar. You're just saying stuff about yourself. Who can believe that? I mean, in the law system, you've got to at least have two witnesses. You don't have any witnesses. You're just making stuff up. You liar. That's what they're saying to him. That's great, isn't it? I mean, it's just great. To look God in the face and call him a liar on a technicality. And the bulk of verses 13 through 20 is this back and forth between Jesus and these enemies. And it looks very similar to the back and forth that they've already had a couple of times. So we're not going to detail our way through that. I'm going to give you the, um, the, the uh, Cliff's Note version. Are you okay with that? You just looked at your watch and so you're nodding your head. Yeah, I know. Here's what Jesus says. Okay, he humors them. He humors them. This shows how unlike Jesus I really am, because I would have you know, said some other things. But Jesus said, okay, you want backup? Here's my backup. Here, here's the authority that I have for saying what I said. My authority is based on where I've come from, where I'm going, and who sent me. Where I've come from, where I'm going, and who sent me. We've been over this already before. Where did he come from? Well, he came physically. He was born in Bethlehem. But where is he already established that he's from? He's from heaven. And where is he going back to? He's going back to the Father's side in heaven. And who sent him? The Father sent him. You want authority? You want to know on what authority I say this? I came from heaven. You don't even know where I was born. You haven't even figured out I was born in Bethlehem, much less know where I'm actually from. I came from heaven. I don't need any human being to validate my statements. And not only that, but I came from the Father. And everything that I say is what He tells me to say. And He's the creator of the universe. And He certainly doesn't need a witness to validate what He says. You know what your legal system laws for a witness are made for? They're made for a bunch of liars. And that's what people in general are. Liars. And so in a courtroom, you need more than one witness. Because 
We all admit that people in general are liars. So you need at least two or more liars to, to lower the chances that they're lying at that particular moment, right? I'm, I didn't mean to offend you by calling you a liar, but, you know, think about it. You probably all fit that at time or two. Yeah, there's this irony. Jesus says, you don't even know where I'm from. I know where you're from. You're from below. That's what he says to them. You're from below. I'm from above. It's interesting. You don't know where I'm going. I'm going back to heaven, but I know where you're going. In verse 44, he says they're going to hell. Oh, you don't, you, you don't know who sent me. That's interesting. You don't know who my father is. I know who your father is. Verse 44, the devil. You see, as this thing moves on, Jesus gets a little more direct, doesn't he? He gets a little more direct. Because he says, I don't need anybody to validate what I say. Because, because if, you know, if you want two witnesses, here's your two witnesses. I speak for myself and my Father in heaven, the creator of the world, speaks for me. How do you argue against that? Well, they do. They say, where's your Father? They look, you can imagine looking around, well, where's your Father? Where's this Father that's going to stand for you? By this time, where was Joseph? Jesus, sort of Father. He's long dead. He was dead before Jesus' ministry began. So on one of two things is going on when they say, where's your father? Either number one, they're, ma- they're, they're making the accusation that he's an illegitimate child that has no father. Where's your dad? We, you don't have a dad. Where's this dad that's going to show up? You're illegitimate. Or number one, they know his father's dead. And they're crudely and sarcastically throwing that in his face. So you know what Jesus says to them, verse 21? He says, you want to you go there? Let me tell you something. I go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Those are the worst words any human being could ever, ever hear from God. Aren't they? They're the worst words that a human ear could ever hear from the, their Creator. The, the, the words that you will die in your sins, and where I'm going, you cannot go. Can you think of anything more devastating from a human perspective to hear than to hear those words from God? You will die in your sins. That's the verdict. You will die in your sins. And where I am going to heaven, you cannot go. That's what Jesus says to them. Your sins will never be resolved. Your sins will never be forgiven. They will not be atoned for. You will bear the wrath of God on them. You will answer for your eternal crimes before your Creator. And you will be sentenced to an eternal hell. You will not go where I'm going. You are completely shut out of heaven. And the only other place to go is hell. Now, you know, we're, we're sinful people. And sinful people have been known to, even Christian people sometimes, when somebody pushes them to the, link, to the brink, makes them really angry, have been, been known to tell somebody to go somewhere, right? Tell them where they can go. Jesus can actually tell them that. And it not be a slur, because he knows. And that's essentially what he does. Shut out of heaven. You realize that when people live in the darkness, and they don't receive the light that shines into their life, they don't receive Jesus Christ, the light of the world, they don't choose to follow him, they don't embrace him, they will die in their sins, and they will not go where he went to heaven. Just like these religious leaders, these enemies. It's the same destiny. And the destiny is not just evaporation into nothing. It's an eternal destiny, a place called hell that Jesus described as outer darkness. A place completely void of anything that represents God forever. You know, it's a pretty terrifying description that the Bible place, describes this place with. I mean, look at all the terms that the Bible uses to describe hell. And you ask yourself the question, is this a place I want to be? Is this the place I want to end up? If I don't go where Jesus goes to heaven, this is where I go. A place of eternal damnation, outer darkness, a second death, everlasting destruction, blackness of darkness, a lake of fire, eternal punishment, the company of demons, unending torment. My friends, hell is real. It's not a figment of our imaginations. And as much as our culture would like to believe that when we die, we just close our eyes and that's the end. It's not the end. 
you go one of two places. You go where Jesus went and has gone to prepare a place for those who know Him and love Him and have embraced the light of life. Or you go to hell, a place prepared for the devil and his demons and for all those, all those who reject Jesus. You don't hear too much about hell these days, do you? U.S. News and World Report did a survey not too terribly long ago. And they found that about 78% of people that they surveyed believed in heaven and believed they were going there. 78%. I'm shocked that 22% said they weren't. Because everybody I run into thinks they're going there. 78% believed in heaven and that they were going there. 60% believed in hell. But get this. Only 4% thought they were going there. Let that sink in for a minute. Okay. So 60% of people believe in hell, but only 4% of the people think they're going there. So a lot of people believe that hell is actual. They just don't think it's a danger for them. So among those in our culture who actually believe in a hell, they define hell in such a way that only the worst of the worst of the worst, where we can't find even a shred of good like the Hitlers of the world, they will go there. But no one else. Certainly not their friend who's an adulterer or their uncle who never worshipped or their buddy Sam who used God's name constantly in vain and so forth. It's amazing, isn't it? Hell's a reality, they think, but it's just not a danger. Jesus doesn't approach it that way. He says not only is hell a reality, but it is a danger, and most people will go there. Most people will go there. The choice is this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You receive the light or you remain in your darkness. You stay in the light. You receive the light. You will go where I'm going. You reject it. You will remain in your darkness. You will remain in your sin. And where I'm going, you can't go. You'll die in your sins. That's the choice. It's the only choice. It's the only choice. It was the only choice for the crowd that listened to Jesus on that particular day. It's the only choice for this crowd. It's the only choice for any crowd. You choose light or you remain in the darkness. You choose the light and then Christ has prepared a place for you. You choose darkness and you will die in your sins and where He has gone you will not go. You will face the eternal punishment for your sin in a place that is more horrid than your human imagination could ever possibly dream up. More horrid than any horror movie you've ever seen on a television scene more horrible than anything you could imagine with the most corrupt human mind. Just put, put it in those terms. That's hell. And it's eternal. But the good news for me and you is this. You're alive, right? Tap your neighbor just to make sure. Yeah, you're alive. That means there's hope for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stands before you just as he stood before that crowd today. Oh, not physically. Not physically. You're looking at me and I'm not him. I promise. But on the authority of his words, which still speak, he says to you, I am the light of the world. If anyone will follow me, you will have the light of life. Choose the light while the light is with you before there's no hope. Would you bow your heads with me? Listen, you've come here this morning, and I don't, I don't know the situation in every life. But I know the truth of what's just been spoken to you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never come to that place in your life where you have recognized that you are a sinner who is trapped in darkness, that is absolutely hopeless to do anything for your own self, to save yourself, that your only hope is that God would do something for you, that He would shine on you a saving light. If you've never come to that, to that conclusion and you've never realized that and admitted that and reached out to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, embraced Him as your Lord and Savior, committed yourself to Him, please do so today. Please do so today. That where He is, you might go one day. And beyond that, that from this moment on, you might have with you in your heart the light of life. You'll never be the same. Ever be the same. Lord Jesus, we, we complicate matters often, but you don't complicate things. You, you, you say things clearly and simply. You're the light of the world. If anyone will follow you, 
they escape the darkness and walk in the light. I pray, oh God, that if there's someone in the darkness this morning, that you would illuminate their light. That they might see you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Their rescuer, their coast guard ship that's come and dropped a ladder and saying, come on up, I'll rescue you. May they reach out this morning and grab hold. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.